Welcome to the teachings of Pastor Mike Yost of the Springs Calvary Chapel in Habern, Idaho. Please join us as we study the Word of God. We're going to jump in where we left off last week. We're in Genesis. We're in chapter 33, just to kind of pick up the pace where we were off. You know Jacob, uh, who's we're studying his life, he and his brother Esau, they were twins, and uh, Jacob was holding on to Esau's heel when he came out, so he got the name Heel Catcher or deceiver, or cheat. And his whole life was spent wrestling, wrestling with his brother, wrestling with God. And it came to a point last week we saw where Jacob has been running from his brother, and then he's running from his uncle, and now uh, he knows his brother's upset, and he's going to come to meet him again. And in the process of running, he met with a man and wrestled all night, that man being Jesus Christ. And it was out on the run that God caught up with him. And he met him where Jacob lives. Jacob's a heel catcher. Jacob's a wrestler. Jacob was fighting with God, always fighting with God. So God says, okay, let's go. Let's go to the mat. And they wrestled all night long. And before it was over, it says Jacob prevailed. It means he just persisted in just wanting to to wrestle and grapple with God, as we often do. We're, we're just wrestling with issues in our life. And Lord, how come you can't hear? Or how come I don't see answers? Or are you there, Lord? And, and if we're honest, we have these struggles, this wrestling with God, this sometimes fighting with God before we know the Lord. And Jesus touched his hip. Bam. He was lame. For the rest of his life, he'd have to lean on his staff He'd actually have to lean on the Lord. He could no longer run anymore. He limped. And that's where we got to the end of chapter 32. And now we're going to see Jacob lifted his eyes and looked. There Esau was coming with him with 400 men. You remember Esau. The last time we saw Esau was in chapter 27. And in chapter 27, that's where uh, Jacob and his mom, Rebecca, devised a plan to trick Isaac and get the blessing. And he, he goes in and says, I'm Jacob, or I, I'm, I'm, I'm Esau, right? And he gets the blessing. And uh, it's funny because Isaac, he's like, I want to bless my son, that man's man, the man of the field. He even says, uh, Isaac says about him, he says, um, my uh, Surely the smell of my son is like the smell of the field. He just loved that outdoorsy guy thing, you know. And, and we know Esau's name, Jacob's heel catcher. Esau means what? Anybody? Harry, right? And here, his own dad is saying, yeah, I just like it. He just smells like just fresh earth. You could call Esau Dirty Harry. <laughs> and now, here we are. In chapter 33, verse 1, and Dirty Harry's a-coming with 400 men. Now, we've watched Jacob as he's running away from things, running to things, cheating, deceiving, and all these things. He can't do any of that anymore. He's lame. He can't run away. He can't run away from this one. He's going to have to lean on his staff. He's going to have to lean on the Lord. So let's see what happens. Jacob lifted his eyes and looked, and there Esau was coming, and with him were 400 men. So, and this is what Jacob does, he gets crafty, he, he comes up with a plan in the flesh, and it's interesting, uh, as we go through this, I'll get to that in a minute. So he divided the children among Leah, Rachel, and two maidservants. He put the maidservants and their children in front, Leah and her children behind, and Rachel and Joseph last. Then he crossed over before them and bowed himself to the ground seven times until he came near to his brother. So here comes his brother, right? He's approaching, and here's these 400 men. And so uh, Jacob then splits up his families. First, the maidservants, the least important in his hierarchy. We talked about that, a dysfunctional family. Then Leah, not the most important, not the least important. And finally, he holds back Rachel and his son Joseph to the end. And then he starts going towards Esau. But in now, we, it's funny, we see this mixed bag in Jacob. He, he's bowing, shaka is the word, paying homage. 
he is prostrating himself before Esau. And here's Esau with his men, and he just he walks a little, and he just bows down. And he gets up, limps a little bit more, and bows down. Limps a little bit more, and bows down, right? And it's not because his hip hurts that he has to bow down. He's humbling himself. He's submitting himself under his older brother. Now, the prophecy was when God spoke to Rachel, she says, what's going on in, in you? He says, well, there's two nations warring inside you, okay? And the younger is going to serve the older, or the older is going to serve the younger. And, and we saw that, but Esau kind of got his, the rug pulled out from him. So he was bitter. The last time we saw Esau, the, his words were, so Esau hated Jacob because of the blessing which his father blessed him. And Esau said in his heart, the days of mourning for my father are at hand. Then I will kill my brother Jacob. Last thing we heard from him. And now here he comes. And Jacob can't walk. And he's bowing down. He's trying to humble out. We call it eating crow sometimes, right? But he's paying homage. He's treating him as with respect as his senior. And, and he's going forward this way. And Verse 4, but Esau ran to meet him and embraced him and fell on his neck and kissed him, and they wept. This is, so here's my brother, here's Dirty Harry, and I'm doing this, and he's just, and you're like, is this it? Is this curtains, right? And he grabs a hold of him, and he falls on his neck, and they're crying, but they're not wrestling. It's a reunion. Esau heart, Esau's heart had been changed over this time, right? But there's this, this wonderful thing, you know, and you're wondering, these 400 men, is, I, in Jacob's mind, he's probably thinking to himself, are they coming to arrest me? Are they coming to bind me? Are they coming to judge me? Or is this maybe like a police escort, right? And, and I'm the hero, and I'm going to get the parade. And we find out that Esau is really uh, pulling out all the stops to honor his brother that's returned, Okay. It says, and, and they fell on uh, their neck and kissed him, and they wept and lifted their eyes and saw the women and children. And he said, who are these with you? So he said, the children whom God has graciously given your servant. You'll notice he repeats this, your servant, your servant, when he talks to his older brother now. Even though God had said that he would be the senior in terms of um, privilege, he refers to himself as your servant. Verse 6, and the maidservants came near, they and their children, and bowed down. They, as they followed suit, and Leah also came near with her children, they bowed down. Afterward, Joseph and Rachel came near, and they bowed down, okay? Then Esau said, what do you mean by all this company which I met? If you remember from the last chapter, Jacob had taken all of his flocks and all of his herds and, and broke them into different droves, different clusters, different groups, about 550 animals in all and at least five waves of offerings. And he told his servant, go and when you meet Esau, say, these are from my, my master, uh, and he's following behind. And they get another gift and another gift and, and, and a whole bunch of animals. So he's saying, um, what do you mean by all this um, company? And he said, these are to find favor in the sight of my Lord, okay? Uh, uh, basically, I'm, I'm, I'm hoping to maybe buy you off, okay? Uh, in some way, appease you, some way, satisfy your wrath. I'm, I'm, I'm afraid. But Esau said, I have enough. He actually says, I have much, my brother. Keep what you have for yourself. And Jacob said, no, please. If I have now found favor in your sight, then receive my present from my hand inasmuch as I've seen your face as though I had seen the face of God and you were pleased with me. Interesting little turn of phrase there. As though I had seen the face of God. Remember, he had just spent the night at the brook Jabok where he did meet God face to face. He named that place Peniel, which means the face of God, okay? One of the places that Jacob names. And, and now he's seeing his brother. And even though no man can see God and live, as we die to ourselves and receive Jesus Christ, all of a sudden the scales fall from our eyes. And you say, I was once blind, now I see, I understand. And now Jacob is seeing answer to all of his prayers, and he's so happy to look upon his brother. Inasmuch as I've seen your face, as so I've seen the face of God, and you were pleased with me. Verse 11, please take my blessing that is brought you, because God has dealt graciously with me, and because I have enough. So he urged him, and he took it. 
I have everything. All that came to his hand, we read in the last chapter, everything that God had prospered him with all these 20 years with Laban, he gave it to his brother. Now remember, he stole the blessing. He stole the birthright from Esau. And so now he's taken everything he's acquired in those 20 years and goes, that's yours, brother. I don't need it, okay? I've got something even better. We read about this in 1 Timothy chapter 6, beginning at verse 6. Jacob is now born again. Okay, we saw that at Bethel. And in 1 Timothy 6, 6, we read, Now godliness with contentment is great gain. I have enough. I have everything. For we brought nothing into this world, and it's certain we can carry nothing out. And having food and clothing, with these we shall be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation and a snare and into many foolish and harmful lusts which drown men in destruction and perdition. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil for which some have strayed from the faith in their greediness and pierced them through with many sorrows. We saw this played out over the last 20 years in Jacob's life with his, brother, his uncle Laban who just coveted, he had that love of money, and he's pierced him through with so many uh, arrows. Uh, all kinds of evil came out of that greedy heart of Laban. But here, Jacob, the new Jacob, the new man, named Israel, last chapter by God, is now saying, I've got enough. You, you take all of that. Verse 12, then Esau said, let us take our journey and let us go, and I will go before you. But Jacob said to him, My Lord knows that the children are weak and the flocks and herds which are nursing are with me. And if the men should drive them hard one day, all the flock will die. Okay, he was moving with uh, a whole band of children and uh, even young, uh, you know, sheep and, and, and calves and those kinds of things. I can't go as fast as you guys. Verse 14, Please let my Lord go on ahead before his servant. I will lead on slowly at a pace with the livestock that go before me and the children are able to endure until I come to my Lord in Sierra. Okay, so what's happening right here? Anybody ever read ahead in this story? He's actually not going to do this. He is fibbing. He is telling an untruth, disinformation, okay? I'll catch up with you after a little while, but... That's not his plan. It's interesting because Seir in the mountains of Gilead in, the, in Edom, modern-day Jordan, is to the south of where they are on the Jabbok River. They're just east of where the Jabbok River empties into the Jordan River, but you would have to go into Jordan to the south to get to Mount Seir where Esau is from. And Sokoth, where we're going to see in just a couple verses, is to the west, northwest. It's the opposite way. But Jacob's not planning on going that way, okay? And it's interesting. Jacob knows God. Jacob's met God. Jacob's wrestled with God. Jacob's prevailed with God. God has touched Jacob. Jacob has a new name, Israel. No longer fighting with God, but fighting with God. I got God on my side. And, and Jacob's a whole new man, or mostly all new man. He still has a little bit of the flesh in him, right? The two natures, Jacob the deceiver and Israel ruled by God. I don't know. It's funny, as you go through the scriptures, you'll see the nation of Israel or Jacob in the person referred to by these two names quite often in the same passage or the same verse, God will call him Jacob and he will call him Israel or the nation, both of those. And you can't take this one to the bank, but I, just a little hint, as you go through and you see God in the Psalms or wherever you are referring to Jacob, he's usually referring to the flesh, that, that human side of us, that human side of the nation Israel, or he refers to them as Israel, that one who has a new name and has a, a new journey, a new destination. It's funny, you can go through and it's like, sometimes you think maybe we should just call him Jakeiel. Or Israkob, because he's just this blend, okay? But before we laugh too much at them, you and I are the same. And so was the Apostle Paul. In the book of Romans, Paul writes, in picking up at verse 18, he says, For this is 25 years, okay? I'm, when I'm reading out of Romans, Paul was writing this 25 years after his conversion on the road to Damascus. 
Okay, so he's been walking with the Lord a long time, and most of us would consider Paul a pretty good Christian. And this is Paul's statement. For I know that in me, that is in my flesh, nothing good dwells, for to will is present with me, but how to perform what is good I do not find. For the good that I will to do, I don't do. But the evil I will not to do, that I practice. Now, if I do what I will not to do, it's no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. I find then a law that evil is present with me, the one who wills to do good. For I delight in the law of God according to the inward man, but I see rather another law in my members warring against the law of my mind and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin, which is in my members. And then Paul just breaks out, Oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Great question. Anybody ever feel like Paul? I do the things I don't want to do. I try, try, try not to, but I do them. And the things I'm supposed to do? Not so good at that either. Oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? He's got the question right. Not what will deliver me from this body of death. Who? The answer is Jesus. <laughs> okay? He says, and he goes on to say in verse 25 of Romans 7, I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, with the mind, I myself serve the law of God, but with the flesh, the law of sin. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh, God did by sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and on account of sin, He condemned sin in the flesh." that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. We're not home yet, okay? Jesus died on a cross 2,000 years ago. His blood was spilled for your sin, for my sin. You were justified 2,000 years ago. Your debt was paid 2,000 years ago. There's no bill or debt against you. Now we walk through the process of life where God is taking that sin that is in us and, and, and making us aware of it and, and making it smell to us like it does to Him and helping us to grow away from that and towards Him. It's a process known as sanctification. And really, that's where we get the word for sainthood. <laughs> He's making you a saint. He's making you holy. But the word is literally to set aside or set apart. He's taking you from where you were, and He is the one who's moving you. And then there'll come a day, oh, glorious day, when we enter into eternity with God, and we are delivered from this body of sin and death. And it no longer rules or reigns in our life. We are sin-freed. That's called glorification. And that is the path that we're on. Okay, Jacob and you and I and Paul were walking the road of sanctification. Day by day, allowing God to work out His will in our life, stumbling, limping, bowing down, only to have God pick us up, take a couple more steps. That's our life, amen? Verse 15, and Esau said, now let me leave with you some of the people who are with me. But he said, what, is the, what need is there? Let me find favor in the sight of my Lord. So Esau returned that day on his way to Seir, and Jacob journeyed to Succoth built himself a house, and made booths for his livestock. Therefore, the name of the place is called Succoth, okay? So Esau is saying, hey, I've got this escort. We can go back together. Jacob says, I can't keep up with you. Go on ahead. I'll catch up with you, right? And so 
he convinces Esau, and Esau leaves, and then Jacob takes off the different way, okay? Sierra is to the south, Sukkoth is to the northwest, okay? But in this, we're seeing some very interesting things happen, okay? He journeyed, okay, to Sukkoth and built himself a house and made booths for his livestock. Interesting, okay? Sukkoth is still on the east side of the Jordan River, okay? Opposite of the, the side where Jacob came from, okay? He hasn't crossed the Jordan River yet back into the place God told him, I'm going to bring you back to where we started. And so he's run 300 miles. Remember that story? 300 miles from Haran to, the, to Gilead and Laban and his guys catch up in haste and, and uh, you know, but for the grace of God, it could have got real ugly, but they set up a memorial, Mizpah, God's going to watch between us. And he's at Gilead. And then from Gilead, those mountains, he traveled, hard to say, 30, maybe 50 miles to the Jabbok River where he has this encounter with uh, the man of God, uh, Jesus Christ, right, in uh, Mahanaim, the, the double camp. Now, he's leaving Mahanaim, Penuel, the place where he sees the face of God. Esau goes that way. He goes this way, maybe 30 miles. He's been running 300 miles. He's trying to get back home. He goes about 30 miles, and he pulls up probably about 40 miles short of going to Bethel. And what does he do? He builds booths, okay, or corrals, you could say, uh, sheds for his animals. And it says he even built himself a house. Now, we don't know what that means, how, how nice a house it was. The word used here could mean a hut. It could mean a palace. It could be interpreted, interpreted, interpreted all kinds of ways, okay? But nevertheless, He's kind of settling down a little bit. It's interesting that that word Sokoth is the word that um, is used for a feast on the Jewish calendar, the Feast of Tabernacles. It comes in the fall. It's one of the three big feasts, and it commemorates the time when God was with His people, taking them from captivity in Egypt into the Promised Land, and He traveled with them. God had His tent, the tabernacle. They had their tents, which is their tabernacles, and He went before them in a pillar of uh, cloud by day and fire by night. And so, this is a feast that the Jews celebrate every year to commemorate tabernacles. When we lived in tents with God, we were on the road with God. And so, one of the customs, we read about it in uh, Leviticus 23, is during this seven-day feast that comes in the fall, they'll take boughs and branches, and they'll build temporary little shelters, and they'll all move outside their house, live in the yard, and live under these tents or these, these temporary tr structures, semi-permanent. They're called sukkoth, booths. And so, here's Jacob. He's building booths for his livestock. He's building a home for himself, and therefore, the place is called Sukkoth. Now, there are six or four different Sukkoths in the Bible, okay? This one is the one on the east side of the Jordan River where the, the uh, Jabbok enters in, just basically opposite of Bethel and Shechem, okay? It's interesting, one little thing I'm going to bring in here out of Hebrews 11, and it harkens back to Abraham, but I'll read it. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to the place which he would receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith, he dwelt in the land of promise as in a foreign country, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, the heirs with him of the same promise. For he waited for the city which has foundations, whose builder and maker is God. Could have took a little page out of Grandpa's book, okay? Waiting. Abraham lived in tents his whole life. His father, Isaac, lived in tents his whole life. And it's kind of interesting to see now Jacob, he's finally back, got Laban off his back. He's uh, pacified Esau. And so what does he do? Just cools his heels, rests. What's he supposed to be doing? Anybody? He's supposed to be going back to Bethel. That's what God told him to do. That's where this whole journey started. But we'll just, we'll just cool our, our heels for a little while. 
Verse 18 said, then Jacob came safely or uh, peacefully, the word is shalem, came safely to the city of Shechem, which is in the land of Canaan, when he came from Padanaram, and he pitched his tent before the city, and he bought the parcel of land where he had pitched his tent from the children of Hamor, Shechem's father, for 100 pieces of money. Then he erected an altar there and called it El Eloi Israel. So he's in Shechem. We don't know how long, but it's a while. It's multiple years. I'll show you the math on that in just a minute. We do know that um, Dinah was born to Leah right about the same time Joseph was, the last of the kids. So they would have been babies at the time that he flee, fled Laban, okay? At this time when they're meeting Esau and all these things, they would have been babies, okay? But we're going to see coming up here, they were in, well, they were in Haran for at least six years when the kids were born. Then he had made a deal with Laban, I'll work for you six more years and that's when I'll get my flocks. So those little tykes would have been, you know, not like that, but they would have been five, six, maybe seven years old. Kind of, we don't have the math on it, but you can, you can project that into there pretty reliably. It says, then they came in peace to the city of Shechem, which is in the land of Canaan, when he came to Padanaran, he pitched his tent before the city, and he brought the parcel of land, or the field, where he had pitched his tent from the children of Hamor, Shechem's father, for 100 pieces of money. Then he erected an altar there and called it El Eloi Israel. This is the first time he uses his new name. God, the God of Israel, my God, my new name, my new relationship with God. I fight with God. I, never, I no longer fight God, but I, I fight with him. I'm, I'm, I'm Israel, okay? So he left Succoth, and he pitches his tent in Shechem. Where is he supposed to be going? Bethel. You know how far Bethel is from Shechem? 15 miles to the south. 15 miles to the south, he gets to Shechem, he buys a field, he pitches his tent, he builds an altar, and he says, my God, the God of Israel. Israel is ruled by God. Didn't God tell you to go to Bethel? Kind of interesting here, but I, I'm not doing this to mock or make fun of Jacob. It's us. It's our human nature. It's how we are. It's how fickle we can be. And in seeing this, we see, wow, maybe there's a lesson in here because I'm kind of like him. So we look at this. It is interesting. He erects an altar there. Abraham, when he was called by God out of Ur of the Chaldees to go to a place, I'll tell you when we get there, and Abraham made his journey to the promised land. The first place that Abraham stopped in the promised land was Shechem. Here. And he built an altar. You read about it in Genesis 12, 7, okay? And that's what he does. He, he lives in tents. He builds altars. And we know from Laban's story, or from uh, Abraham's story, he dug a lot of wells, right? And his son Isaac dug a lot of wells. In Genesis 26, 25, we read, uh, speaking of Isaac now, his, Abraham's son, Jacob's father, so he built an altar there and called the name on the name of the Lord. He pitched his tent there, and Isaac's servants dug a well. And this is kind of a pattern we see with them. They're nomads. They've got flocks. They've got herds. They need to water their animals. And so they get to wherever there's good pasture, and they set up camp, okay? In this case, he bought the field, okay? He owned it. He took possession of it. And he set up an altar there and pitched his tent there and dug a well there. Do you see that? Somebody call me out. It doesn't say it there, does it? But it's there. I'll show you later. He dug a well there. Now Dinah, the daughter of Leah, whom she had borne to Jacob, went out to see the daughters of the land. At this part of the story, Dinah is going to be uh, a young lady of age. 13, 14 minimum. Likely in her later teens. Hard to say. So Jacob has been, he, it's like 10 years since he left Laban now. Okay, he's supposed to be going to Bethel. He doesn't. He tells his brother, I'm going to follow you. He doesn't. He hangs out in Succoth. Then he moves. 
He buys a field in Shechem. Where is he supposed to go? Bethel. Years are going by, and he's not following the call of God. And in those years, the kids are growing older. Now, Dinah, she's old enough. She wants to go out and see what's going on. I want to see what all the other girls are like around here. Can you relate, girls? I mean, she's got ten brothers. Are there any girls around here? I want to make some friends, right? So she goes wandering on into town. Not a good move, okay? Unescorted in unfamiliar territory amongst, we're going to find out, some very heathen, wicked people, Canaanites of the area of Shechem. And when Shechem, the son of Hamor, the Hivite, prince of the country, saw her, he took her and lay with her and violated her. Bad. This is probably the second to the worst chapter in the whole Bible that I would ever have to teach. You're never going to find anybody else teach you this chapter on the pulpit on a Sunday morning, unless you're going to some place where they teach through the Bible, book by book, chapter by chapter, first by first. I've got to teach you this. But I don't like it. It's ugly. It's bad. You know, it's like just, uh, was it yesterday? Clay came up to me and he goes, uh, you know, I'm mowing out there in the yard, and you got an issue you might want to look at. We go out and look at it, and uh, our sewer line is popped the top, and all the toilet paper and everything else is up all over the lawn, and we're ha- on Monday, tomorrow, I'll go to K&R Rentals and get a snake, and we'll roll up our sleeves and dig in. If you ever wonder what your pastor does when he's not digging into the Word, It's just the way life goes, right? And so here I have to roll up my sleeves and dig in to the Word. Plug your nose, it's going to get bad. (laughs) It says he violated her or humiliated her. And what this is, referring to that they had sexual relationships. They weren't married, they weren't, and they shouldn't have been doing that, okay? Humiliated her. His soul was strongly attracted to Dinah, the daughter of Jacob, and he loved the young woman and spoke kindly to the young woman. That word for love the young woman is Ahab. And Ahab can be good love, but it can also be lust. And in this case, it's lust. He was strongly attracted to her, and uh, he did. And this is rather interesting because many people talk about this, that he raped her, okay? Now, there's nothing in the story to qualify it as non-consensual, okay? Just to be clear, we don't know all of that. But look at how this goes, and maybe think of people you know, okay? They're out there just living in the world. They're going out to some kind of event or a bar or whatever. They see somebody they're strongly attracted to, and... Look what happens. It says, his soul was strongly attracted to Dinah, the daughter of Jacob, and he loved the young woman. No doubt he probably thought, I love that young woman. Lust often disguises itself, parades itself as love, and spoke kindly to the young woman. So Shechem spoke to his father, Hamor, and said, get me this young woman. A little bit of advice on this, and I've got a lot to cover here, but I'm If we don't finish, we don't finish, but I'm not going to miss this, especially for you that are not married this morning. Understand this. The heart, it works for married people too. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? The answer, I, the Lord, search the heart. I test the mind even to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruits of his doing. You're not going to fool God, okay? Your heart is wicked. Your heart is deceitful. Your motives, your actions, they're, they're, they're fundamentally of the flesh. This is what Paul is talking about, this struggle that we have. And God knows what's going on here. And God knows what's going on with Dinah and Shechem. And they may think they are in love, They may even say words of love, and they may even act as though they are in love, but true love waits. True love honors God. True love 
wants what's best for the other one, not what I want. It's not about your feelings. Feelings are deceptive. If you want to know if it's real love, look what kind of fruit it produces. God says, I will give to each man according to his ways, according to his righteousness. And what we're looking for is the peaceable fruit of righteousness in our relationships, honoring one another, respecting one another. So I'll, I'll, I'll stop on that for just a minute, but something that we need to, to look at here, what was done was wrong. I don't care which way we slice it, ought not to have happened. Verse 5, and Jacob heard that he defiled Dinah, his daughter. Now his sons were with his livestock in the field, so Jacob held his peace until they came. Now, a lot of us look at that and go, what kind of dad is that? Man, I would have gone out and just pounded his eyes shut or something. You know, it's like, you did that to my daughter? You know, <laughs> we're going we're gonna to have words. We want to be careful not to read too much into it. I will say this, uh, I, uh, Jacob didn't have this available to him at the time. It was written 400 years ago in the book of Deuteron Deuteronomy by Moses. But in Deuteronomy chapter 22, verses 28 and 29, talking about um, sexual relationships and what is proper and what is improper, it says in verse 28 of Deuteronomy 22, if a man finds a young woman who is a virgin, who is not betrothed, then he seizes her and lies with her, and they are found out, then the man who lay with her shall give the young one's father fifty shekels of silver, and she shall be his wife. Because he has humbled her, he shall not be permitted to divorce her all his days. That's a pretty lenient sentence. If you look up in the other categories, a betrothed woman or somebody who struggles and fights back, it's the death penalty. And even in America, it wasn't that many decades ago, for some of you that have just been recently born, rape was a capital offense. It's wrong. Whether this was rape or consensual, it's wrong, okay? And Jacob, he holds his peace. It did say back up in verse uh, 18 of the last chapter, they came peacefully to Shechem. Now he's holding his peace. He's trying to, you might say, even count to 10. His sons are out in the field. He's about 109 years old, and he's got a bad hip. <laughs> and this Shechem is in, you know, the, the, in his, you know, whatever, the power of his life, right? So it's like, uh, I should wait till the boys get back home, Okay. The sons of Jacob, okay, and Jacob heard, and now his sons were with the livestock. He held his peace until they came, verse 6. Then Hamor, the father of Shechem, went out to Jacob to speak with him. And the sons of Jacob came in from the field when they heard it. And the men were grieved and very angry because he had done disgraceful thing in Israel by lying with Jacob's daughter, a thing which ought not to be done. Just a, a quick note, first mention in the Bible of Israel as a people group, as a nation, Okay first chapter in which Jacob calls himself Israel, and now the boys are calling themselves Israel, this new nation, Israel, which we know of, you know, familiarly through the Bible. This is where it first is, is noted, okay? So they're supposed to be ruled by God, governed by God, walking in the rules and precepts, admonitions, commandments of the Lord. They're Israel. The sons of Jacob came in from the field when they heard it, and the men were grieved and very angry because he had done a disgraceful thing in Israel by lying with Jacob's daughter, a thing which ought not to be done. They came in from the field, and, hey, hey, what's going on, you know? Well, someone's in the kitchen with Dinah. Someone's in the kitchen, I know. That's an old minstrel song. You guys are chuckling. Don't look up the lyrics. I did. You don't want to see them. But... This is what that's about, okay? <laughs> so they knew something was very unseemly. In fact, it says very anger, angry. Just, just a little thing. If, you ever, if, if you're somebody that deals with anger, some of us have that issue. Some of us don't. But just know, 
Anger is just one letter away from tragedy. Add a D, you get danger. When you step into anger, you stepped in it. The wrath of man can never produce the righteousness of God. Never. So, while things are wrong, absolutely wrong, flying off the handle is never going to be the solution. But that's how the boys felt, and we feel it. We see that, right? Verse 8, but Hamer spoke with them saying, the soul of my son, she of my son Shechem longs for your daughter. Please give her to me as a wife and make marriages with us. Give us your daughters to us and our daughters to yourselves so you shall dwell with us in the land and, and the land shall be before you. Dwell and trade in it and acquire possessions for yourselves in it. Then Shechem said to her father, then said, then Shechem said to her, Dinah's father and her brothers, let me find favor in your eyes, and whatever you say to me, I will give you. Ask me ever so much dowry and gift, and I will give according to what you say to me, but give me the young woman as wife. Okay, so Haman, he's looking at this as um, political and economic expediency. These people just came into our land. They bought a field. They've got large flocks. If we intermarry with them and assimilate them into our culture, all their stuff will be our stuff, okay? And uh, so he's looking at that from what we can gain out of this deal. And so he's putting forward this proposition uh, that somehow you should allow that to happen. It's interesting. Ask ever so much a dowry. That's a bride price. Um, and th this was common in those days. He says, you name your price, I'll pay it. Let's just make this thing go away, okay? I'm trying to buy a favor with you. Have we heard anybody buying a favor this morning? Jacob, 550 animals for his brother Esau. It just comes around, you know, when you start playing this game of trying to bribe people, flatter people, connive, and, and it just... It, always comes back and bites you. And so now they're dealing with these Canaanites, these really wicked people, and they're trying to do the same thing. He says, ask me ever so much dowry and gift, and I will give you according to what you say, but give me the young woman as a wife. Again, Paul has something to say about this. In 2 Corinthians 6, at verse 14, we read, do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. For what fellowship has righteousness with lawlessness? And what communion has light with darkness? And what accord has Christ with Belial? Or what part has a believer with an unbeliever? We should not be unequally yoked. While that applies to every aspect of life, whether it's your business partner, partners or uh, any, anybody that you would enter into working relationships with, you want to make sure you're working with fellow believers. Now, that doesn't mean that you can't go into the world and do business, and I'm not trying to do a boycott and divest message or anything like that. We, we work amongst people, and even in uh, the Bible, it talks with the Jews as to how they're to trade with the strangers and, and foreigners in their land. There's, there's rules that kind of govern that, but as far as uh, binding yourself in any contractual obligation, such as business or the vows of marriage, not, don't do that, not with unbelievers. Um, boy, if I could do a hobby horse right now, but you could do it for me. How many of you guys have seen the carnage of some of our friends and some of our kids who are raised up in the church and they love the Lord and they just, they're beautiful, they're so sweet and God is such a blessing in store for them and then for whatever reason, they careen off and they marry a non-believer or somebody from a different faith. And we watch the train wreck, the tragedy that occurs from that. And as parents, we're like, don't go there. Stop, don't go there. Why are we saying that? Because we want to like uh, you know, take your joy away from you or somehow judge that other person as though we're their judge. It just how many train wrecks do you have to see in your life before you say, don't run the tracks? It's not worth it. It's just not worth it, okay? 
But this is what's going on. Verse 13, but the sons of Jacob answered Shechem and Hamer, his father, and spoke deceitfully. I wonder where they learned that. You know, all the names that they were named by Leah and Bilhah and Zippah and Rachel, and it's just, it's just been warfare and deception their whole life. They've been raised in that kind of a family. They spoke deceitfully because they had deviled Dinah, their sister, and they said to them, what we... We cannot do this thing to give our sister to the one who is uncircumcised, for that would be a reproach to us. But on this condition, we will consent to you. If you will become as we are, every male of you is circumcised. Then we'll give our daughters to you and take your daughters to us, and we will dwell with you, and we will become one people. But if you will not heed us and be circumcised, then we will take our daughter and be gone. Just to touch on that for just a brief moment, okay? This business of circumcision, God gave it to Abraham for his descendants forever in perpetuity that it would be a sign of his covenant, a sign of their fidelity between God and themselves. And it was something that happened amongst other cultures in these early days. They weren't the only nation that did it, but when a Jew did it, it was a sign between them and God, okay? It meant something. It wasn't just a ritual. But what these brothers are proposing is do the ritual and we can get married. God would say in Deuteronomy chapter uh, 10 in verse 16, 17, and 18 that what really counts is what's called a circumcision of the heart. You need to cut away that flesh, that, that human desire, right? That non-sinful part of yourself. It needs to be from the heart. It's not just a physical thing. But this is what they're doing. And remember, they're deceiving them. It's a trick. Verse 18, and their words please Hamor and Shechem, Hamor's son. So the young men did not delay to do the thing because he delighted in Jacob's daughter. That's motivation. He was more honorable than all the household of his father. Now, it's interesting. That doesn't say much for that household. If Shechem's the most honorable guy in the whole bunch, really? It just shows you when God told the nation of Israel when they were coming back to the promised land to drive out and kill all these Canaanites, they were wicked. They were just uh, terrible, terrible people. Verse 20, And Hamor and Shechem, his son, came to the gate of their city and spoke with the men of their city, saying, These men are at peace with us. Again, this idea of being at peace. And they were. They were being peaceful, at least at this point. Therefore, let them dwell in the land and trade in it, for indeed the land is large enough for them. Let us take their daughters as wives and let us give them our daughters. Only on this condition will... The men consent to dwell with us, to be one people. If every male among us is circumcised, as they are circumcised, will not their livestock, their property, and even every, and every animal of theirs be ours? Only let us consent with them, and they will dwell with us. And all who went out of the gate of this city heeded Hamor and Shechem, his son. Every male was circumcised, all who went out of the gate of the city. Okay, so they, they bought it hook, line, and seeker, and they did it. Verse 25, Now it came to pass on the third day, when they were in pain, that two of the sons of Jacob, Simeon and Levi, Dinah's brothers, each took his sword and came boldly upon the city and killed all the males. And they killed Hamor and Shechem, his son, with the edge of the sword, and took Dinah from Shechem's house and went out. Absolute brutality, just cruel and wicked. It goes on to say, the sons of Jacob came upon the slain. So it wasn't just Simeon and Levi, but it seems like it was Simeon and Levi that conjured up this plan. If you go to the end of the book of Genesis in uh, chapter 49, when Jacob is blessing all of his children, he, he, he doesn't really bless. He kind of curses Simeon and Levi. In verse 5 of chapter 49, he says, Simeon and Levi are brothers. Instruments of cruelty are in their dwelling place. Let not my soul enter their council. Let not my honor be united to their assembly. For in their anger they slew a man, and in their self-will they hamstrung an ox. Cursed be their anger, for it is fierce, and their wrath, for it is cruel. I will divide them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. And in fact, when it came time to parcel out the property among the twelve tribes of Israel, when Jacob conquered the promised land, Simeon was scattered amongst the tribes of Judah and Benjamin, and Levi didn't get any property, they were to dwell in cities and always serve in the tabernacle from then on. So they didn't even get an inheritance because they were so wicked and cruel. And so they did this terrible thing. Verse 27, the sons of Jacob came on the slain and plundered the city because their sister had been defiled. They took their sheep, their ox, and their donkey, 
and what was in the city and what was in the field and all their wealth and all their little ones and their wives they took captive and they plundered even all that was in the houses. This is so wrong on so many levels. Do you see why it's kind of like going to k and and buying a snake? I, I wish I didn't have to teach this. There's, it's how can you redeem anything out of this chapter? Verse 30, then Jacob said to Simeon and Levi, you have troubled me by making me obnoxious among the inhabitants. You're, you're like, a, I'm, I'm a, a foul smell in their nostrils. I stink among the Canaanites and the Perizzites. And since I am few in number, they will gather themselves together against me and kill me and I shall be destroyed, my household and I. But they said, they're talking back to the dad, should he treat our sister like a harlot? The answer is no, but you should not treat others this way. We've got a lot of this going on in our culture today, and it's, it's really getting where we're divided against one another. It, it, it's, it's awful. Um, I mentioned to you uh, th- this idea where Jacob did nothing, you know, and and, and you wonder what's going on. And, and for the last 50 years, since 1973, when the Supreme Court put Roe v. Wade on the books legalizing abortion, a federal mandate, we have been saying, how can we fix this thing? But you can't fix it with bloodshed. Abortion is bloodshed. How are you going to fix bloodshed with bloodshed? Okay? Uh, it's on the unconstitutional usurpation of the legislative branch's powers, okay? It undermines democracy. It's an abomination in the eyes of God. And now we're looking at things going to turn over possibly, right? And there's rioting in the streets literally going on, right? And they'll always put up different things like, well, what about rape or what about incest? Those are terrible issues, and I think they should be addressed, but you know that of all the abortions that are performed and have been since it became law, 1% are rape and one half of 1% are incest. So we're talking about 98.5% are just wanton destruction of something inconvenient. Abortion kills human beings. Okay? It's, you know, it's not women's rights, which we've heard. It's women's rights. It's women's rights. Okay, just do the math with me. 50%, that's half, 50% of all babies are female. What about their rights? That's not women's rights. Is it pro-choice? People talk about that. Pro-choice, my body. Yeah, that went away with the jab, but it doesn't remove choices. You still have a choice, and your choices don't get pregnant. People say, well, how do you expect to do that? I got a newsflash for you. There is a cure (laughs) for unwanted pregnancies. Ready? Don't have sex. Rather than teaching sex ed in schools, we should be teaching abstinence ed, right? Wait until you're married, okay? Um, And even within the marriage, right, people talk about all these different rules. There is ways to enjoy intimacy that don't lead to pregnancy, that you don't have to engage in an activity that could cause what we describe as an inconvenient or unwanted pregnancy. To be clear, there are no illegitimate children, period. There's lots of illegitimate parents, okay? But it's not the child's fault. And gentlemen, you do know you have the power to stop unwanted pregnancy and abortion. Do you know you have that power? It takes two to tango. 
Remove yourself from the educa- uh, uh, equation and end of story. We don't need Roe v. Wade. We don't need laws. We don't have a problem. I will say this. If this does come to pass, places like Sage Wayland Center are going to need a lot more support from the church. It's something that's on our horizon. We're going to have to roll up our sleeves and get busy with being part of the solution. Men, honor women. Women, respect men and everybody. Honor your parents. You know, it's a commandment. You'll live long in the land. Brothers, we need to protect our sisters. And sisters, you need to protect your future husband. There's coming a day you're going to want to look in his eyes and say, I saved myself for you. It's important. It's really important. Today's Mother's Day. Smile. Your mother chose life. Worship team, come on up. While there are lots of issues in this that are problematic, let me bring out a couple more that come through the Scriptures. We've been in Shechem, right? Abraham set up an altar there. We read about that. Now Jacob's living there. He's got a field. He pitched his tent. He built an altar. We see this what in my Bible is called the Dinah Incident. How do you title this? Dinah Incident, right? Um, But then in Deuteronomy 11, chapter 29, and then in chapters 27 and 28, God commands Moses, when they get to the promised land, they're supposed to go to Shechem between two mountains, Mount Ebal and Mount Gerizim. And Mount Ebal, they're going to pronounce curses for disobeying God. And on Mount Gerizim, they're going to pronounce blessings for obeying God. And as they they go through this, it's interesting these curses and these blessings, just like Jacob, just like the two guys, Israel and Jacob, and, and good and bad, and what can come out of all these things. Um, it is interesting, in Genesis 48, um, we're going to see that uh, Jacob gives Joshua an extra portion of the blessing. That portion of the blessing that all the brothers didn't get on top of whatever they got, Jacob or uh, Joshua, his two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh, got the blessing. So they got a double portion. Then he gave Jacob one more thing. He gave him the field that he purchased in Shechem. The reason I tell you that is it comes to play a little bit longer into the um, story in John chapter 4, and I am finishing up so you can tune up. In John chapter 4, Jesus came to a city of Samaria, which is called Sychar, That's Shechem in the New Testament. Near the plot of ground that Jacob gave to his son, Joseph. Now, Jacob's well was there. Now, do you see the well? He pitched his tent, he built his altars, and he dug wells. Jacob's well was there. Jesus, therefore, being wearied from his journey, sat thus by the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman of Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. In verse 12, she says, are you greater than our father Jacob who gave us the well and drank from it himself as well as his sons and his livestock? Jesus answered and said to her, whoever drinks of this water will thirst again, but whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him will never thirst. But the water that I shall give him will become a fountain of water springing up into everlasting life. Jesus continued in verse 21, said, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when you will neither on this mountain, Ebal or Gerasim, or in Jerusalem, worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we, we, I'm sorry, we worship what we know for salvation is of the Jews. But the hour is coming and now is when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such to worship Him. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to Him, I know that Messiah is coming, who is called Christ. When He comes, He will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am He. It took 3,000 years from the days that Jacob dug that well Tell Jesus would sit down with a Samaritan woman who had had a number of husbands 
and was basically just thrown to the curb. She was violated and dishonored. And he brought her living water. He brought her new life. Every page of the Bible is filled with hope, with promise, and with life with Jesus. And even in the most yucky stuff, God's working. In our lives, he's working. In the lives of people you know right now, people you've been praying for, maybe you've been praying for them for a long time. He hears you. He knows. His timing is perfect. I'm going to close in prayer, and I'd like all of us just to pray for those people that we know who are struggling. Are you a Jacob? Are you wrestling? Are you fighting God? Is it time to let him hug you and fight with him? Father God, I thank you for your word. And even some of the passages that are really hard for us. We find them so disgusting, so repugnant, obnoxious, as Jacob would say. And yet, Lord, I'm mindful, if I'm honest to you, that I smell like that sometimes. And I, I'm sorry for the offense that I've given you. I may have done it in ignorance. I, I, I might have even done it in my, my rebellious pride. I don't want to be like that. I need your help. Oh, wretched man that I am. I need you to deliver me from this body of death. Fill me with your Holy Spirit, even this day, that I can, like the Samaritan woman, go into the village and tell everybody, this man is the Messiah. He knows everything I've ever done. And a whole city was saved. Help us, Lord, be your salt and your light, your living water in this dark day. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thanks for joining us today. To learn more about the Springs Calvary Chapel, please visit our website at www.thespringscalvarychapel.org. Join us in person at the Springs in Hebron, Idaho, or here on the podcast as we worship together in spirit and in truth.